your copy of the scripture to Matthew chapter 16. We're finally back to Matthew. We've missed him. Matthew chapter 16. Verses 21 through 23. That's where our message will be drawn from this morning. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must, must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. For you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. I'm using a subject, as you probably know already, contradicting Christ. Believers in Christ, born-again people, must be mindful to accept God's revelation even when it is beyond their comprehension or does not fit in their ideas about the Lord and his ways. You must remember your place as creatures and acknowledge God's place as, well, God. Through the prophet Isaiah, Yahweh employs nature to articulate the superiority of his ways and thoughts over ours. Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9 read as follows, For my thoughts are not your thoughts nor your ways, my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. This truth is a lesson from Human Existence 101. If we do not acknowledge this fact about ourselves in relation to our Creator, we may find ourselves contradicting Him. What arrogance, what pride. Rather, in humility, we must bow before the authority of the God expressed by his word. Martin Luther, the reformer, penned these words, the authority of scripture is greater than the comprehension of the whole of man's reason. Close quote. That is the lesson Peter and the rest of the disciples had to learn in the episode the matter of Messiah's death didn't fit with their thinking. What Jesus disclosed to them was outside the categories that they had placed the Messiah in. And we want to use uh, as the first heading for verse 21, revealing the divine plan. You'll notice uh, in verse 21 from that time, the words that time are a time stamp marking a definite turning point in the ministry of our Lord. From this time forward, the Lord Jesus would primarily minister to his disciples. His public ministry was growing shorter. His private ministry to his chosen men would be the focus 
of his attention primarily. In our text, he reveal, reveals in explicit terms what awaits him in the future. You see in the text, he says that, that he must go to Jerusalem. That word must is an important word and is one we must understand because we can just kind of read by it and not understand what it really means. It denotes divine imperative and an absolute necessity. The word further conveys what Jesus is about to say is part of the unchangeable plan of God. And also lets us know that God's Son is willingly submissive to the plan of God. He had said at one point he must go the way it has been written for him in the Scripture. Jesus, in fact, in Luke chapter 9, 31, set his mind to go to Jerusalem. He was determined to do that which the Father had decreed for him to do. He must go to Jerusalem. You say, well, why Jerusalem? The plan included going to Jerusalem, the city of sacrifices, so that he may become the Passover lamb. He would offer himself as the once for all sacrifice. You remember, the Jews were accustomed to offering sacrifices and in Jerusalem, the capital city, sacrifice was being offered. Even during Jesus' ministry there, over and over and throughout their history, the lambs would be slain and the books would be slain. All of the sacrificial system was set up, and it all pointing to Jesus Christ. God was teaching them that there must be a death, there must be a sacrifice for sin, and Jesus would be that once for all sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 21. Our Lord further elaborates as he talks to his men personally and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes. The suffering that Jesus endured when there be the mock trials. Trials that had the verdict had already been determined. Kangaroo courts. The fix was already in. And the Son of God had to endure the indignity of standing before men and falsely accuse him of things. False witnesses were brought in. They couldn't even agree, but they agreed to lie about Jesus. He had to suffer being handed over to the Romans. He had to suffer being uh, whipped with a scourge, his back being lacerated. And there are three groups mentioned here who will be involved in this. And they comprise the Sanhedrin. You notice these, this group, the elders, the chief priests and scribes. Uh, they comprise the Supreme Court in Israel, the religious supreme court. These men hated Jesus. He was undermining their authority. He was telling them that their religion as they practiced was hypocritical. Indicting them. 
And they were afraid the Romans were going to take their place, as one of their leaders said. And so they wanted to get rid of him. Jesus said he must be killed. This is his ex first explicit statement to that effect. He had per previously alluded to his death in Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 40. When he said he would be as Jonah three days in the earth and he would come forth, that's what he said here. Now, it's quite clear. He must be killed. On a purely human level, Jesus was murdered by the Sanhedrin. As I said earlier, they plotted against him. In fact, they wanted him dead and long plotted and planned to achieve their unjust ob objective. What they meant for evil, God meant for good. Aren't you glad about that? The wonderful reality about this is man proposes, but God disposes. God, 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 God makes sure that he would achieve the plan and the purpose that he had already determined. In fact, from the divine standpoint, Jesus' death was central to his saving mission. The mission was the salvation of sinners. The men in the Sanhedrin, the elders, chief priests, and scribes had no idea who Jesus really was or what he was going to accomplish. In fact, that saving mission, and you need to understand this, it was no accident, his death. In fact, it was pre-planned. It's pre-planned in eternity past. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. Men had their part. They had their role in fulfilling God's plan. Acts chapter 2, verse 23 is a wonderful text to show how both man and God worked to achieve the great end of Christ's death for our salvation. Acts chapter 2, verse 23. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. That's God's part. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. That's man's part. You see, earlier in the verse, it's quite clear. This man, speaking of Jesus, Peter is the one who's saying this, was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. The men executed him. That plan was determined in the eternity past. Don't ever, don't ever, please, don't ever fall prey to the lie that Jesus was a martyr and his plan went astray. People say that. That's nonsense. Jesus right here says, I'm, a go I'm going to Jerusalem and be killed. He knew what the plan was. He purposefully went there to be killed. That doesn't sound like a victim to me. That sounds like someone who knows the plan is going to follow the plan because that was the plan that God determined in eternity past. But not only that, the Old Testament prophecy taught and proclaimed the, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 22 speaks of him being pierced. A wonderful reality. Uh, crucifixion hadn't even been invented when Psalm 22 was written. 
It talks about him being pierced. Well, you know, you say, well, how can that be? Simple, because God wrote the Bible. He knows everything. If you haven't figured that out yet, you need to get to thinking. Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 12, talks about Christ, the, the suffering servant, as he is called in Isaiah. He would come and he would die. He would be wounded for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was laid upon him. He was the substitute. God had announced that in that prophecy from Isaiah, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, his death was essential for our forgiveness. Let me talk to you about that for a moment. Sin must be punished. God cannot simply, apart from the full satisfaction of sin, forgive sin. God cannot just willy-nilly say, okay, I forgive all of y'all. No. Let me tell you something about the nature of sin. It is not merely against an external order outside of God. Sin is against God himself. God is offended by sin. We take sin lightly too often. God in his infinite holiness does not take sin lightly. He is offended by sin. Your sin and mine. Because he's an infinitely holy being, he is infinitely offended by sin. And because he is a just God, he, he must deal with sin. He must punish sin. How then can God save us and satisfy himself simultaneously? That is the question on the floor. Put it another way. How can God, who is righteous, forgive sinners and be at the same time just? How can a righteous God be just in forgiving sinners? How can he do that and not undermine his holiness, his righteousness? How can he be just and maintain that and be the justifier of sinners? If you're a Christian this morning, you've been declared just. You've been justified by faith. How could God declare you righteous and you know you're not righteous? You know you're a sinner. How could God do that and yet maintain his righteousness? Good question, isn't it? Y'all want an answer? There is an answer. Romans chapter 3. Go, with, go there with me. Romans chapter 3. I wouldn't know how to solve, solve the problem. Answer the question. But God in his infinite wisdom, he always had it figured out. Isn't that good? He had the answer. Romans chapter 3. 
Paul in this passage is talking about justification by faith. That is, a person is declared righteous legally by God when they trust in Jesus Christ. Justification by faith alone, in Christ alone. This redemption, this grace, this gift, this justification is a free gift. And it comes through Jesus Christ, verse 24, the bottom of the verse, Christ Jesus, it says there. Uh, and here is in verse 25, the word whom is referring to him. Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation on the cross. God displayed Jesus Christ publicly as a propitiation in his, by his death in his blood. Let me explain that word propitiation. It can mean appeasement. It can mean satisfaction. And that's what it means. God satisfied his just wrath against us through Jesus Christ. Christ's death satisfied, satisfied God's wrath against sinners and sin. God was able to maintain justice because he punishes sin and yet justify sinners who trust his son. You see, Christ bore our sin. He endured divine wrath for us. And then God, when we believe, can apply the benefit of what Christ did on the cross to us. And that includes forgiveness because our sin was punished in Christ. That's the gospel. In God's justice, every sin and sinner is punished. Christ's death perfectly satisfied the demands of divine holiness. God didn't finish with Christ's work and say, well, I'm sorry, but there's something else to do. No, Christ perfectly satisfied God's wrath against sin. Paid it in full. You remember on the cross, John 19, Jesus said, te telestai. The Greek word te telestai it comes from that. It means, it is, it is in a word used in commercial transactions, payment in full. When Jesus said, it is finished, when he said, it is tetelestai, what he was saying, the sin debt is paid in full. Because he had borne it. He absorbed the wrath of God and he satisfied God's holy demands against our sin. And he could say, Father, it's done. You say, well, how do I know? First of all, because he said so. <laughs> Duh. Now, back in our text, I want to show you something else. Should have had you stand. No, no, no. Stay over there in Romans. I'm going to read our text. 
I don't worry y'all out turn have you turned too much. How do we know? Notice something here. I'm going to read it for you. In Matthew 16, 21, Jesus makes this statement and be raised up on the third day. That's how we know that he had paid our sin debt. But further, Elaboration on this is in Romans chapter 4. You're still in Romans, look at chapter 4, verse 25. Speaking again of our Lord, he who was delivered over because of our transgressions. Let me just stop there for a moment. You, you notice Jesus was delivered over to the cross not for his sins because he committed none. He was delivered over because of our transgressions. You. Your transgressions. You went over the line. You missed the mark. You sinned. You. You should have been delivered over. I should have been delivered over. You notice the rest of the verse. And was raised because of our justification. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead was like a receipt. It proves that God the Father accepted his sacrifice. It proved when Jesus said, it is finished. It was. Because he raised him from the dead. He accepted the sacrifice. That's the plan. That's the plan from all eternity and fulfilled in human history. It's what Jesus is revealing to his men in verse 21, revealing the divine plan. Verse 22, go back there if you will now, rejecting the divine plan. If you know anything about Peter, Peter's always saying something. First, there's an action in verse 22. Peter took him aside. Peter couldn't abide by this. You say, why would he do that? Why did he take him aside? Peter knew that Jesus was Messiah. He had understood that in Matthew chapter 16, 16. The father spoke through his mouth. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He knew the Christ, that means Messiah, is Messiah. But Peter's understanding of Messiah did not include Messiah's suffering and death. Remember what I said earlier? When we get divine revelation, we have to accept that, understand. That's what God said. Christ has unfolded before them. This is the plan for me, Messiah. But Peter and his fellow disciples, uh, like their fellow Jews, they thought of Messiah only in his kingly role. They wanted a Messiah who would come and not deliver from sin, but deliver from their enemies, the Romans, and restore their national autonomy and power. That's what they wanted. 
But God didn't send them that kind of Messiah the first time. He sent them the Messiah, as the Old Testament and Jesus' words tell us, who would suffer for sinners. Peter had in his mind, wait, 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 wait. Now, that's not what we've been believing all our life about Messiah. You talking about dying? Really? No. So Peter, in his audacity, took him aside. That word took, it means to take to oneself. It pictures Peter taking Jesus aside in order to remonstrate with him for his own good. He says, Lord, I have to come over here. I need to talk to you about your own good. You notice in the text here it says, he rebuked him. That word rebuke in the Greek, um, a level of authority, authoritative judgment from a superior to someone under his command and oversight. That's what the word means. Let me put it like this. Peter has, in his arrogance, elevated his authority above that of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's Peter, a mere man, nothing but dust, would dare to rebuke incarnate deity. This is what he said. God forbid it, Lord. In the original, it could be translated this way. May God be gracious to you. That is, may God in his mercy spare you this. Peter didn't know what he was talking about goes on to say this shall never happen to you in the original language the word never is doubled to communicate a very strong negative Peter here contradicted the redemptive purposes and plan of God do you know what that means if Peter had his way do you know what that means no cross meaning no forgiveness of sins no cross, no heaven. No cross, only eternal suffering in the lake of fire. I like God's plan better. Revealing the divine plan. We've seen that. Re rejecting the divine plan. We see it in Peter. Rebuking the contradictor of the divine plan. Verse 23. But he turned. Jesus that is. In the parallel account in Mark. Mark chapter 8. Verse 33. It says. And seeing the disciples. When Jesus turned. Looking at Peter, he also looked at the disciples. He wanted all the disciples to hear what he was about to say, which suggests that they were thinking what Peter had said. They were in agreement with what Peter said in verse 22, and Jesus wanted them to be sure to hear what he was about to say to Peter. Because if you get on his side, you're listening and thinking like Peter, this applies to you too. Hear the words. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. 
Another way that could be rendered is this. Get out of my sight, Satan. I told you earlier, Peter had been a spokesman for God, the Father. Now he's a spokesman for Satan. Why did Jesus say that to him? I'll tell you why. Satan did not want Jesus to go to the cross. Satan was present. He had indwelt a serpent, and he was in the Garden of Eden when the Lord God uttered the prophecy of Satan's doom, his defeat. In Genesis 3.15, when it says in part, the seed of the woman shall bruise him on the head. Are you on the head? Satan was there in the Garden of Eden when God pronounced judgment on Adam and Eve, and he himself, he knew that he was going to be defeated at some point down the road. So Satan did everything he could to keep Jesus from going to the cross because he understood the cross is going to destroy me. Remember his temptation there in Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4? One of the things Satan tried to get Jesus to do, bow down and worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Just don't go to the cross. He, He knew what the cross meant for him. And he still knows it. He said, Jesus, I'll I'll give you all the world's kingdom. Just leave that cross thing alone. Wouldn't you like to do that? Tell you something. The cross of Jesus Christ is the epicenter of Satan's defeat. John chapter 12, verse 31 says, the prince of this world is cast out. Colossians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15 elaborates Satan's defeat. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14 similarly talks about Satan's defeat. Satan is rendered powerless against all who are saved. Satan had the power of death and what happened on the cross, Jesus' death, he took that away from Satan. Do you know what Christians don't fear any longer? We don't fear dying. Our sins have been addressed. I don't have to face judgment because of my sin because Christ took care of them on the cross so I don't have to fear dying and going to hell. If you're afraid of dying, you got a sin problem. And you know it. You say, well, I'm not afraid of dying because after all, when um, people die, that's just it. You know that's not true. You know there's life after death. If you're afraid of dying, you have a sin problem. Your sin has not been dealt with. You have not come to the Savior who can forgive you because of his sacrifice paid for. But Jesus' death on the cross meant eternal redemption for those who believe in him. Satan didn't want him to go. Satan knows, too, that the cross meant I'm defeated. And eventually, you know how it is in a football game? When the, 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 the team is so far ahead, for all practical purposes, the game is over. They've got to run out the clock. 
And you can, if it's your team ahead, you can just sit back and relax. Say, yeah, we got this. It's in the wind column already. They just got to let that clock run down. The victory is ours. Do you know what's going on spiritually? Satan has been defeated, and history is just running down the clock. Jesus has the win. And since we're with Jesus, we're on the winning team. And everybody's with Satan's on, they're in the L column, losing column, just running out the clock. Further, he says to him, verse 23, to Peter, you are a stumbling block to me. An occasion to sin. Those are some strong words from Jesus to Peter, aren't they? Well, he needed to be rebuked strongly because Peter had fallen into Satan's trap and found himself trying to lure the Lord in that trap as well. The problem with Peter is like us, reasoning from his own finite and sinful mind, found himself opposing God. I remember someone years ago said, my God wouldn't do thus and such. You better check out and see what the Bible says God does. From a quote from my favorite expositor of the scriptures. Some of y'all know who that is. John MacArthur writes, When we as believers do not submit our minds to God's ways and word, we are easy prey for Satan's traps. End of quote. Men who reject the kind of Messiah Jesus is and want to come to him on their own terms find themselves moving away from God. If you you want salvation, but you you want Jesus to be some kind of other Savior than the one he is in the Word, you just move away from God. You have to come to him on his terms. You see, Satan didn't set his mind on God's interests but on man's. But he didn't stay there long. Writing near the end of his life, he writes First Peter. He talks about the glorious significance of the cross. He says this in First Peter 3.18, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. He got it. And so do we who know the Lord Jesus Christ. If you don't know him, You need to get to know him. Let us bow and pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you for the uh, truths of your word this morning. We pray that as those of us who are believers, that we'll find ourselves submitting to your authoritative word about everything you say about us, about life, about death, about sin, about heaven, about hell, whatever the uh, situation is you address. May we refuse to allow our 
imperfect sinful reasonings to contradict your revelation, which is perfect, pure, and true. In everything. When you rebuke us, help us to say, yes, Lord, I was wrong, you're right. We pray for those in this room who are without Christ, who are under your wrath because your word says so. In John chapter 3, they are headed to hell. Sins unforgiven. Pray you open their eyes to the glories and majesty and wonders of the saving mercy of Christ and flee, as it were, to him for salvation, which includes forgiveness of sins for all eternity. Save lost ones today. And we pray this, that your name, first of all, may be glorified. Those who repent of their sin and come to Christ experience the joy of salvation. These things we pray in Christ's name.